0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Welcome to the Summer of Joy. We're going to talk about joy all summer. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm losing my joy. Do you ever feel that way? In fact, Given the circumstances of our world today, you almost wonder, is it legitimate to be joyful? When you look at what's going on in Ukraine and you say, man, the suffering that's going on there, it's hard for that not to hit you and to leave you with a heavy heart. You got this crazy maniac named Putin who seems bent and determined to wreck the world and draw everybody into his own maniacal whatever it is he's trying to do. And, and so there's a lot of fear and anxiety and all the things that are tied to that. And then you add to that the unrest in our nation that we've seen in the streets of places like Portland and San Francisco and other places. And then the homelessness thing is out of control. Uh, there's conflict on the border. Drug addiction is, just seems to be running rampant. More uh, deaths by drug overdose this year than at any time in America's history. I think 100,000 have already died of drug overdoses this year. And then there's political unrest. Uh, we have an endemic, pandemic, whatever that means, you know. Uh, the pandemic has become endemic, which I mean, which I guess means it's never going to go away. And now they've got this thing called the monkeypox. Have you even heard about that? Which is a terrifying sounding, whatever it is. And they say, ooh, be careful, watch out for the monkeypox. I'm like, okay what does that mean? How how do I watch out for that? You know, gas is at over $4 this morning. I was driving to church. It was $4 and seven cents. I filled up Amy's car the other day and it stopped at $98. And I was a little disappointed just to tell you, I thought it's going to break a hundred and I'm sure I will next time. But can you imagine And they're telling us there's all this worker shortage, there's not enough pilots to fly the airplanes, and they don't have enough workers to fill the jobs, and now you can't find baby formula. I mean, what in the world? And that stuff will... Just take the joy right out of you. And, and if it's not that stuff, it's also all the personal stuff that we're dealing with and the conflicts and the family and the job and interpersonal relationships and you're disappointed with somebody and somebody else is disappointed with you and, you know, your expectations weren't met. And, you know, all these different things sort of conspire against our joy. Um, and some of that can just suck the joy right out of you. Some of us have lost our joy and we need to recover it. But I've got to say this, some of us never had joy and we need to discover it. Some of you guys need to discover what joy is. I mean, you might have grown up in a home that was filled with criticism and nobody ever laughed and the complaints were always out there and they talked bad about anybody and everybody. That may be your experience. You know, it's been surprising to me because I grew up in a home that was filled with laughter, and there's always been a lot of laughter in our walls, and I've always loved that, and I assume that was true for everybody, but there's a lot of people, they never heard anybody laugh. Um, Elin Glasgow, in her autobiography, tells of her father, who was a Presbyterian elder, full of rectitude and rigid in his duty. He was entirely unselfish, and in his long life, he never committed a pleasure. Man, Who wants to? There's some people who think that laughter and joy don't even belong in the church. I used to have this old guy named Jimmy, and he would come up to me after church, and he would say, and he'd point his little bony finger in my face, and he'd go, God's going to hold you accountable for all those jokes and stories you told. And I thought, you know, he is not a very joyful person. And it's funny how people like that want to make you like them, and I always want to say, I don't want to be like you because then nobody will like me either, you know? So don't listen to those people because they're out there. Joy should be a normal part of the Christian experience. In fact, it is the magnitude of winsomeness that draws people to Jesus. Listen to these verses. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22 A joyful heart is good medicine. We're going to come back around to that as we walk through the pages of Philippians. A joyful heart is good medicine. Not only is it spiritually healthy, it's physically healthy. But a broken spirit dries up the bones. Psalm 6410, the righteous man will be glad in the Lord. Joy is, in fact, one of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Look at this. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, all of those things that seem to be so lacking in so many people's life. But it's almost as if we've forgotten these verses. It's almost as if we've forgotten the joy of the Lord is my strength, you know. And I just give you two or three. I mean, that you could walk all the way through the Bible. Um, and people become hard. Look, life is hard. I get it. But it's a whole lot harder when you don't have joy. Uh, Billy Sunday, the old evangelist from 100 years ago, said, the trouble with many men is that they've got just enough religion to make them miserable. Is that you? I want to talk about joy because I think we need it more than ever. I know I do. I look at my life and I go, what is the thing that's starting to come up short in my life? And you know what it is? It's joy. I'm just not as joyful as I used to be. And I'll I'll be honest with you. I think I am by nature a joyful person, but I guess just the the routine of life and, you know, going through the the hard stuff all the time, it can begin to, to, to take that away from you. So it's time for us to rediscover it because I keep asking myself, what happened to my joy? Maybe you're asking yourself that. What happened to my joy? So let's have the summer of joy, okay? And our text is going to be Philippians. So let's take the Bible out. Let's go to the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians is a book. It's really a letter. It's a letter written by Paul to a church that that resided in a town called Philippi. The town of Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father, uh, Philip, and it was in Macedonia, which is in the northern part of Greece today. And Paul is in prison in Rome, so he writes this letter to the Philippians. And this is a, you've heard of a love letter? Well, this is a joy letter. Because this letter is filled with joy. It's, you know, theologians call this an epistle. You know, some of us think an epistle is the wife of an apostle, right? It's an, an epistle means a formal letter. So they often call the letters of Paul epistles, but they're not epistles because they're not formal. It's just a letter. This is a joy letter. Uh, Out of the 104 verses in the the letter to the Philippians, 12 of them use the word joy or rejoice, and oftentimes that word shows up multiple times in those verses. So over 10% of the verses in this text have within them not just the concept, but the express word joy or rejoice or joyful. And so the concepts that you'll see here are concepts related to joy. And here's what I want you to pick up. They run counter to our notion of joy. You know, if I had to say, what is America's formula for happiness? Think about it for a second. For you to be happy, what do you need? And I think our culture says you need some of this. And here are four categories. One is notoriety. To really find you, you got to be known. Fame. Uh, Wealth. Uh, Ease is the best way I could say it. Kind of a trouble-free life. I I just, I want to be able to do what I want when I want. And uh, beauty. And our world says, if you have any combination of those, maybe three out of four, maybe two out of four, if you can get those in some form of combination, then you're going to naturally experience happiness or joy. But I was watching this documentary on Marilyn Monroe. You know, she is not, not the, the singer, uh, Marilyn Monroe, the old movie star, the old starlet. Uh, it's interesting to me when I was watching the documentary, it's the Monroe tapes, it's on Netflix. It's really an interesting documentary on her death and the influence and involvement of the Kennedy family, but I don't want to go there. But uh, anyway, uh, what surprised me, first of all, was how long ago she lived. She was born in 1926, which makes her like nine years older than my mother, which is, I didn't realize that. And she died in 1962, which is before the Beatles came to America. And so this, this is a 60 year ago kind of thing, you know. And, and, and I think it's interesting because even today, people still know who she was. In her day, I mean, she was probably certainly the most famous female in the world and, and, and perhaps the most famous personality in the world. And she had everything that our world says is necessary for happiness or joy. She was, very wealthy, she was, as I said, extraordinarily famous, Um, and apart from the chaos that she created in her own life, she had a life of relative ease. I mean, she'd make a movie, go do whatever she wants for as long as she wants, and when she got tired of that, she'd go make another movie. That kind of, you know, pretty easy life compared to, you know, 99% of other Americans today. And she was stunningly beautiful. Beautiful. But was she happy? You know, the documentary quoted her as saying this, and I thought it was interesting. This was on one of the tapes. She said, happiness is the most important thing in life. Isn't that interesting that she said that's the most important thing in life? Without it, you live a life of depression. Trying to be happy is almost as difficult as being a good actress. You have to work at both of them. And here's what I came away from. She knew the importance of happiness, and she had all of the things that are supposed to make us happy, but she could never find happiness. She took her own life through an overdose of sleeping pills at the age of 36. I haven't really been keeping up with the uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard thing. Maybe you have. It's all over the, it, it's always in the headlines. So it's, you know, you read through the news and you'll get stuck on one of these headlines, you know, and. Something else has come out in court, and and I couldn't help but think, man, this thing is like a it's like a dumpster fire, right? It's like a it's like a dumpster fire of human relationships. And I look at their life and the misery that they brought into each other's life and into the lives of other people around them, and I think, but they had all those things. They had wealth. They had fame. They had a very easy life. And yet, I I don't want in that marriage, do you? Were they happy? What do we take from this? Well, maybe happiness isn't where we thought it would be. So if we want to rediscover real joy, then we need to look somewhere besides where everybody else is looking. And that's exactly where Paul takes us in the book of Philippians. Philippians is called one of the prison letters, or if you want to be theological, a prison epistle. Um, Paul is in prison when he writes it. Let me give you the backstory of that. I'll I'll try to walk you through it quickly. Um, Paul always had this dream of sharing the gospel with his Jewish brothers And having brought the gospel into what is today modern-day Turkey, Galatia, and all those areas, Ephesus, all that, in what, what is today the Turkish Peninsula, he had moved across to Macedonia, brought the gospel into northern Greece, brought the gospel into Athens, down into southern Greece, all the way down into Corinth, and down into the 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 peninsula of Greece. So so he's basically evangelized a good chunk of the Western world. He has a dream of going to Rome, but he's going to put that off because he's he's been taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And he wants to get back there as quick as he can because there, there's going to be a big feast. And he wants to get to Jerusalem in time for the feast because that meant that all of the city would be swelling with Jews from all over the region. And he would have the opportunity to win his brothers to Jesus. Well, all of the people in the church were like, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul, you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you, they're going to kill you, they hate you in Jerusalem. Paul's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. God, call me Jerusalem, I'm going to Jerusalem. So he gets there, first thing they do, they arrest him. And then a gang of zealot Jews decide they're going to kill him. So they make this vow, we're going to die killing Paul. And so they're going to kill him. Word gets out to the the Roman guards who are protecting Paul. And so they speared him away in the middle of the night up to Caesarea, which is a Roman fortress up in the north modern Lebanon area. And Paul sits there for two years waiting on trial. During that period, various governors come in and question him, and all that's kind of in the book of Acts. You can read that uh, later. Um, so he's in, he's in Caesarea, and one of these governors comes up and says, well, Paul, we're going to take you back to Jerusalem so you can stand trial down there, and we get this matter settled. Paul's like, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me if I go to Jerusalem. I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. Roman citizen does that. The minute you do that, it's over. Your appeal is lodged. You're going to Rome. Now, not everybody wants to appeal to Caesar because if you remember, Caesar at that time was a guy named Nero. Looney is a road lizard, right? So you don't really want Caesar as your judge, but that was kind of a last resort. So they load him up on an Alexandrian grain ship. They sail him across the Mediterranean, the the Adriatic Sea. And uh, while he's out there, there's a storm. Ship gets caught in it. They get blown off course. Shipwrecks. They wind up on the island of Malta. Paul gets bit by a snake. Nothing's going his way. Now he lands in Rome, and he's in Rome for two more years, which is interesting to me because I'm thinking, this is God's greatest mouthpiece, who is delivering the gospel, and God allows him to be chained up first in Caesarea and then in Rome for two years. And I'm like, what are you thinking, Lord? But here's what happened. While he was in his Roman imprisonment, he wrote, and we got as a result the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. Crazy thing. God captivated his man so that his man would have time to write, and that became canonized in our New Testament. And the crazy thing about Philippians is it's all about joy. And and here's the point, and this is why I told you this long convoluted story. Why would a guy who has been held captive, attempted murder, all of these things stuck in isolation for two years, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, carried into Rome, under guard for two more years, why would that guy write a book on joy? Because he doesn't have, when I look at it, contrast that to Johnny Depp or Marilyn Monroe. He doesn't have any of the same things. He wasn't famous outside the church. He wasn't rich. He wasn't beautiful. He wasn't even free. So he didn't have a life of ease. And yet here he is. Look, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. This is the letter from Paul and Timothy. So Timothy is his protege in the faith. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Doulos. Servants. I'm writing to all of God's holy people. Underline that holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders, that's episcopate, that's the overseers, that's the pastors, including the pastors and the diakonos, the deacons, the servant leaders. I'm writing to all of the saints. You got that? Um, To the holy one. New American Standard says to the saints. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this is, Because if you miss this, you miss something powerful about the concept of joy, okay? He's not writing to some select group of super spiritual, highly polished, holy people who've essentially won the Congressional Medal of Honor for spiritual courage under fire that we would call a saint. Saint Peter, Saint Matthew, Saint Christopher. That's not what he he says to all of the saints. You see that? You know what that means? It means to be in Christ is to be holy. We're all saints. We're all holy. I mean, let that sink in for a minute, you know. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a real saint. Why don't you do that? Let's do that right now. You're a real saint. (laughs) Feels weird, doesn't it? Because you don't feel like a saint. You're like, man, you don't know what I did last weekend. Look. We're made holy and acceptable to God, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did. His death on the cross covered my sins. Now the Bible describes it as the blood of Christ covers my sins, and therefore God looks at me through the lens of grace, and He has declared this old unrighteous sinner named Bill, He's declared me to be the righteousness of Christ. So that moment that I embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior and I confess my need and I repent and receive Him by grace, I've become Saint Bill. I deserve a little more respect. Bob Bozeman and I were in the Provoslavic Church in Kiev, Ukraine one time, and they had these priests, you know, in their robes, and they'd kind of float around. And, and uh, they had these acolytes that would run before them, and these two acolytes ran before this, this uh, Orthodox priest, and they opened the doors and held them open while he comes floating through the door. And I looked at Bob, and I said, you think we could pull that off at North Monroe? He said, not a chance. <laughs> Because we're all saints, not just the priests. Uh, look at the next verse, verse 2. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. This is a common salutation of Paul. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. You know what he was doing? He was taking the typical Jewish salutation, which is shalom, and he was bringing it into the Greek, Irene peace. And then he was taking the typical Roman salutation, which was joy, kera, and he was Christianizing it with a very careful, close word called grace, keres. The Romans, when they would greet one another in Greek, they would say, kera, joy. But Paul says, Keris, grace. Why does he say that? Because our joy flows from grace. You're not going to get joy without grace, because grace is the very thing that makes us right with God. And when I'm right with God, I have peace. And when I have peace, what do I get? Joy. It's not from my standing of notoriety or wealth or any of those other things. So here's the first implication. There's joy in knowing that I'm enough. I'm enough. Here's who you are in Jesus. You're holy. God has declared that to be the case. You aren't holy by virtue of your performance. You're holy in Christ. Being in Christ has made you holy. Maybe this will help. Jesus often compared our sin to our debt. Remember, he tells the story of the unrighteous servant who owed this debt he could never repay, and then he wouldn't go out and forgive other people. And so oftentimes, our sin is understood in terms of a financial debt. But we tend to think of it as a debt that's payable. And so we think, well, you know, I can do my spiritual equivalent of Dave Ramsey and I can pay off my debt so I can sort of structure my debt in such a way I pay the first bill first and then eventually I'm going to earn God's approval through my performance. And that indicates we don't understand the degree of our debt. Our debt is beyond repayment. And when you understand that, when you really understand the gravity of your sin, I begin to appreciate the magnitude of forgiveness, and that's where joy is. People who think that they can somehow pay off their debt don't realize how great the debt really is. Here's something that helped me a lot. When I was a boy, my family was a tennis-playing family, and my dad was a, he started his teaching career as a high school tennis coach. Um, then he eventually he went on became a college professor. They needed a coach. He helped to coach the tennis team. So tennis was in my family. My brother was a, actually owned a tennis center, so that's that's how we grew up. And uh, one day, Dad, when I was about eight or nine years old, Dad bought these two brand new Jack Kramer Wilson tennis rackets. Anybody here play tennis back in the day and remember a Jack Kramer racket? It had a uh, cat gut strings, which were really expensive. So this is a really high end racket, really high end strings. The problem with cat gut strings is you could not get them wet. If you got them wet, they would shrink and they would break or they would break the racket. The racket itself was made of wood too back in those days. And so the racket would break. Well, one day I'm playing outside with these two brand new cat gut strung Jack Kramer Wilson tennis rackets, top of the line. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sure I wasn't supposed to have them but I left them outside and it rained. And both rackets, just one racket folded like this and the other folded like this, just totally broke and folded up. My dad was so mad at me. He was so mad at me that he told me, you're going to have to pay for those rackets. I'm like eight years old. I'm like, How am I going to pay for a racket? And then dad said this, I'm going to get you a job at the school cafeteria. You're going to work in the school cafeteria until you pay those rackets off. I'm like eight years old. I, I don't even know how to pick up my bedroom And dad's going to put me in the school cabinet. I'm I'm picturing myself sweating over pots and pans with one of those hairnet things on while all my friends come by laughing at me and going to the playground. Dad let me live with that for a full week. And I remember thinking, I will never be able to pay off those tennis rackets. I don't know how much I could make as a cafeteria worker, but I don't think I'm ever going to pay those off. And then dad walked in at the end of a week And he said, you're not going to have to pay for them. It's okay. Just don't ever do it again. That was his way of forgiving me. To this day, when I think of an unpayable debt, I think of those tennis rackets. And it helps me understand grace. The thing about grace is there's nothing I could have done to pay that debt. But Jesus' death death was enough, and because Jesus' death was enough, I'm now enough. I don't have to earn God's approval through my performance. I don't have to be afraid that I'm not enough. I don't have to hate myself for not being enough. I can rest in God saying, you know, the cross was enough. And look, there's joy in that. There's release in that. If I base my sense of worth and value and my joy on notoriety, then I'm going to constantly be watching social media for likes and dislikes or whatever, you know. I'm going to always be worried, am I I notable enough? If I think it's all about wealth, I'm going to expend tremendous energy to try to gain that wealth and then try to figure out how to keep that wealth. And think about all the things that that's going to do in my heart. When I can rest in knowing I'm enough, I don't have to be more than I am. There's joy in knowing that I'm secure because my holiness is His doing. I don't have to earn it, and that means I can't lose it. And so I don't have to worry about what's going to happen in my future. You know, I have a friend that used to struggle with anxiety all the time. She told me that the thing that helped her most, one day she said, okay, what's the worst can happen? I could die. But I know Jesus, so I'm going to heaven. So the worst thing that can happen to me is I'm going to heaven. And that helped her with her anxiety. It, it sort of put it all into context to live as Christ, to die as gang, Paul's gonna say. Luke 10 tells the story of the 72 going out spreading the good news. When the 72 disciples returned, this is Luke 10 17. They joyfully reported him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. Now watch, verse 20, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice, there's that word joy, because your names are registered in heaven. I have this security knowing that nothing's going to happen in my life that's going to take away my eternal joy. There's joy in that. I don't have to fear the future. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to live in that kind of stuff. And then there's joy in knowing that I'm not alone in this. I mean, Philippians 1, every time I think of you, think about this. This is Paul writing to them. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. Whenever I think, I give thanks and, and I, th- I thought about this. Think of what, how empowering these words were. First, he's thinking about them. And that word, every in my remembrance, it's not like I'm recalling a specific thing, but it's a word that has to do with overall recollection, like my awareness of you. Every time I'm aware of you, and he's thinking about them, they're on his heart, they're in his head. And second, he's thankful for them. He's grateful. And then third, he's praying for them. He said, whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. We almost talk about praying for someone as if it were cliche. There's nothing more powerful you can do than pray for someone. And then he's joyful because of them. He's thinking about them. He's thankful for them. He's praying for them. He's joyful for them. And fifth, he believes in them. Look at uh, Philippians 1, 5. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. And that word for finished is telos. It means completed. I have no doubt Paul is saying to them that you guys are going to be awesome. You know how empowering that would be? Think about it. That's Paul writing to you. He's thinking about you. He's thankful for you. He's praying for you. He's filled with joy because of you, and he believes in you. There is nothing quite so empowering than to be believed in, right? You know, when I got my doctor's degree from Dallas Seminary, there were only eight of us who uh, got a doctor's degree that day. There were several hundred master's degrees, but only, only eight on the doctoral deal. And, and uh, the president of the seminary at the time was a guy named Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll. And so um, when I got my di- diploma from him and when I walked up on the stage, he took my hand, he looked me in the eye and he said, I've really enjoyed reading your stuff. I was like, wait, what? You read my stuff? Swindoll read my stuff and he enjoyed it? You know, he's the president of the seminary. He's not part of the program. Why would he read my stuff? And I I didn't hear anything else that day. Swindoll read my stuff and he enjoyed it. He believed, now he could have been lying to me. It didn't matter. I don't care. I don't want to know. (laughs) But in that moment, you know what he said? I believe in you. And man, people need to hear that. People in our world need to hear that. We need to share that, especially with your kids. You need to let them know. For all the criticism you give them, you need to let them know I believe in you and that you're not in this alone because there's joy in that, way more joy than the places the world tells us. Henry Nguyen said this, joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, even death, can ever take that love away. So let me ask you, what happened to your joy? Could it be that you're struggling with joy because you've been looking for it in the wrong things? If Johnny Depp can't find happiness with all the stuff he's got, then happiness isn't where we thought it was. And if it's not where you thought it was, then are you ready to look somewhere else? Because I'm telling you, Paul tells us right where it is. You are holy. That means you're enough. You are secure in that. When you're in Christ, you are in security. And you are not alone when you are part of His family. Not only does God believe in you, but his people believe in you. And he's going to finish what he started in you. And that should fill you with joy. Let's pray together. And let's just go before the Father and let's say these words. Father, restore my joy. Would you just pray that right now? Father, restore my joy. God, help us not to look for joy in places where the world has never found it. Our joy is in you. Your word is so clear. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So help us to be satisfied in you. I I love what Piper says. You're most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in you. Help us, Father, to realize that we're enough. Help us to realize that we're secure and help us to know that there are people who believe in us and you believe in us so that we would be filled with joy. Father, we thank you for the joy that comes in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.